Amen. So I grew up in a small town in Minnesota. If you don't know where that is, it's a place that's much, much colder than this place. I once convinced a, a friend in college that I went surfing on the East Coast. It's right, not on the East Coast, but it's right in the middle of the United States and surrounded by nothing but landmass as far as you can see. And so we in our small town, little Minnesota, lived somewhat of a sheltered life, a pretty mono-ethnic community, primarily northern European white middle class families in the community. If you grew up in Iowa, Wisconsin, Minnesota, you know what I'm talking about in the sort of area that I'm talking about. Of course, it has changed throughout recent years, but my experience in my hometown was such. And so I was surprised my senior year of high school when a professor of mine, who, or not a professor, a teacher of mine, who was leading an IB theory of knowledge had a, an assignment for the class. The assignment in the class was to tell a story of history. But it wasn't just that, it was also followed by an art project that we were to have in the general hall of our school campus. And the art project was the other side of the story of history. So what we did was we chose a point in history and we learned from it from what we had heard from our textbooks and then we asked questions about that story and told it from another vantage point. And so I had given the, been given the assignment of Dresden. If you don't know what that is, it is a city within Germany and had all the beauty and kind of the art that Germany had to offer. And on one side of my story was the triumphant end of World War II. But on the other side of the card was the reality that when the war was likely already finished, the United States bombed this beautiful city. It was an eye-opening moment when I realized that m the version of history that I learn is a version of history. That there are other sides to the story. I'm not trying to say which side is right or wrong. It's just there are different perspectives on our shared story. Are there not? I was given a book later in my first year of college by Howard Zinn, and it was the People's History of the United States. And if you know who Howard Zinn is, Howard Zinn is famous for writing the underside stories within history, almost like the stories from the backside than you get in your general textbooks. I say that for us today because we are in the midst of a sermon series on faithful questions where we ask our questions together and we trust that God embraces our questions and that our questions help us go deeper. What I learned in high school, my early years of college, was that history is our history. But unless we ask the questions of it, it remains flat. It's more dynamic when we ask the questions of our shared history. And one of the questions that was asked of us during our sermon series, which we thought would be relevant for us on this Mother's Day, is what do we do with the reality of patriarchy throughout the Bible and even the early church? Super fun story to talk about on Mother's Day, right? But it's true and it's there, and there is no avoiding the reality that for the primary portion 
of human history, including the history of the church, women, along with children, have been seen as lesser. Their voices have been suppressed throughout history. They haven't been able, the luxuries of voting, and there's still gaps within the wealth, you know, the ways in which women make money. And then also there's glass ceilings that are encountered in enterprises. And we encounter the remnants of the patriarchal system. And it's one of the ways that we talk about the structures of sin and death in society. That sin is not just personal choices, although it can be, but sin is also interwoven into the fabrics of society, and we as people have to de-shackle ourselves from them. And the ways in which throughout history we've treated women is an example of it. But friends, if we do not ask the questions of history, our own history of faith, we don't find the opportunities to subvert the narratives that we have. What do I mean by that? If we don't ask the questions of the Bible and our own history of the strong, faithful women in our stories, we will never see them. There's a phenomenon that many of us are aware of. It's the reality that winners write history, right? The history that we read, the vision that we have upon our stories of old, shape how we engage the future. And I think that this is the challenge for many as they approach the Bible, especially the Old Testament. Look, for example, the texts that we have before us from Genesis. Of Hagar being sent off into the wilderness. It's not just remembering the stories, but it's how we remember these stories that matters. I grew up, well, I didn't grow up in the church, as many of you know, but when I came into the church, I was told the story of Abraham and Sarah and of Hagar and of Ishmael and of Isaac. And the primary narrative that I was given of that story was that Hagar was a mistake of Sarah and Abraham. God had given a covenant to Abraham and Sarah to bear many children. The offspring would number as much as the sand on the sea. And yet Sarah and Abraham took into their own kind of willpower to have a baby with Hagar, one of Sarah's handmaids. And of course, that was the mistake of taking control of God's promise putting it into their own hands. And that was the narrative, and that was all I knew of the story, and I never asked the questions, even though we have text that teaches us that there's more to the story. It wasn't until I was in a class in divinity school called Reading the Bible Alongside the Koran that I began to open my eyes to the potential of reading the story of Hagar differently. If you don't know that the Quran, the Muslim sacred text, also shares the story of Abraham and Sarai and Hagar and Ishmael and Isaac. Although in this story, Hagar is not a mistake to be disregarded, but a faithful patron saint of the faith, Muslim faith. 
She was out in the wilderness, and the story gives you a little bit more of the picture of what we have in our biblical narratives, that Hagar goes out, and she is sent into the wilderness. The same story, different reasons, though. And she takes initiative, and she starts running from mountaintop to mountaintop to search for water for her child that was thirsty. And the resilience and the strength of this woman was seen by God, and an angel was sent to them. And as we heard the version of the story from our Muslim brothers and sisters, we, within the divinity school, the Christian tradition that we found ourselves in, went back to our texts for a minute. Because since the time of Augustine and other church fathers that had interpreted, Hagar, again, was the mistake. But we began to see differently the story of this woman. And as we looked at it within our own biblical narratives, we saw that it was, the mistake was an interpretation that people had had upon this story. Every opportunity that Hagar was given to remain faithful to her people, Abraham and Sarah, and to her God, she made. She said yes, and when she was encountered by the sort of jealousy of Sarah, she even still remained faithful to serving them and to serving God, and she found herself in the wilderness in despair, thinking that no one would come to save her, and with her voice being silenced, she still cries out, and God hears her voice. The story of Hagar is a story of our own biblical narrative of resilience and the strength of a mother that's committed to the love of her child, even in desperate circumstances, and a God who shall not forget her or her son. But she is not the only woman of the Bible of strength and of character that we hear, even amidst the patriarchy that surrounded the time. There's stories of Ruth and her faithful and obedient love to Naomi. There's the story of Esther, a a woman who stands up for all of God's people amidst the king of Persia. There's the story of Lydia, a fabric worker who helps the Apostle Paul spread the gospel across the Greco-Roman world, who without we would not be here today. But friends, if we never ask, we shall never find the stories that are in the Bible, that are in our history together. Because sometimes the people who write it focus on what's important to them. A growing trend in archaeology is not to focus on the tombs of the kings and the spears of the warriors like it has for many years. A growing trend in archaeology is to focus instead upon the beads to be found in the homes, the pots, the utensils that were used to create the meals. Because friends, what that tells you is more about the everyday life of the ancient people than you might learn from the textbooks or the spears or the kings. You might learn more about their diet 
You might learn more about their household practices and who is invited in and how they come together in community. And so a growing trend is to reclaim the stories primarily of women from the history. Because those are the ones who found themselves in the homes. But in so doing, finding our story as humans more full. To hear the other side. The side of resilience and of strength. And if we never ask, we never find. And if we never find, we never celebrate. Did you know that even within our own Methodist heritage, not only were we having women in leadership throughout the late 19th century, but one of the first denominations throughout the kind of slew that was beginning to ordain them, that United Methodist women led the charge for the United Methodist missions throughout the history of the 19th century. And the United Methodist missions established 200 hospitals and numerous colleges and universities, and we set up orphanages, and we did all kinds of amazing things through the power and initiative primarily of the women within our stories. You may or may not have heard of Ann Jarvis. Have you heard of Ann Jarvis before? Oh, there's a couple. Stephanie raised her hand because I told her this morning. But Ann Jarvis was a woman who grew up in a coal mine, what is now known as West Virginia. Grew up in a coal mine of West Virginia in the home, taking care of the fathers and the children. She taught the importance of hydration the importance of nutrition to the people in her community. When the Civil War broke out, they established a hospital in her area, and she began to teach nurses and women to care for those men that had gone off to war. She even helped establish clubs of reconciliation and and believed that the way that we would heal as a nation post-Civil War would happen as we brought those together in those kind of conversation stories. West Virginia, a borderline area between the North and South. And she believed that we should recognize the powerful role that mothers played. And her daughter wanted to live out that tradition. And so her daughter began conversations with Hallmark. (laughs) And Mother's Day was born from a United Methodist woman who began to speak and teach about the power and resilience of women in communities to care and to celebrate. And later on, the daughter just, you know, if you, I, I don't worry, I bought a card too. But later on, the daughter said, you know, how <laughs> it, the power of writing your own card <laughs> for your mother. Said, who would go buy a Hallmark card where someone writes the sentiments for you? <laughs> but our own history is in the birth of this day. To recognize the role that women have played in caring for our communities. If it wasn't for the United Methodist women, we would not be part of the suffrage movement. They were underlining that as well as child labor laws within the United States. The United Methodist women have pushed us as a a denomination into mission more than any other group that we have. If we don't ask, we don't share. 
we don't share, we don't discover. And if we don't discover, we won't see our world differently. Our faith is full of women of strength and courage. Now that does not mean that we live in a world that patriarchy and oppression does not exist. But we do live in a world where people, especially of women of faith, empower us to go further, to press harder in our love of God and our care for others. Most of the church leaders I have encountered throughout my ministry have been women. The hospitality of the church has been driven by our mothers, our daughters, our sisters. Let's make a space for all voices, especially the voices of women, in our place, around the table, that we might hear all of our history. A full picture of God at work through our church and through the stories of old. So whoever asked that question, thank you. Because if you wouldn't have asked, it wouldn't have reminded me of the importance to share the story together. So let's ask and let's celebrate together the strength of women in our faith and let us follow in their example to embody Christ in the world. I invite you to pray with me.